disinformation and propaganda. And the viral videos about this war that are having huge impact, they're completely fake, but they're having dire consequences. Dozens of accounts on X, formerly known as Twitter, spreading rather what's believed to be coordinated posts with disinformation about the war. When any major news event happens, a lot of us have the same impulse. We go to social media to follow the latest updates. But that can sometimes backfire. Right now, we're seeing viral misinformation everywhere, especially during the current Israel-Hamas conflict. Spreading fast, influencing opinion and making it difficult for anyone who uses social media to decipher what's really happening on the ground in the Middle East. So we asked the experts why this is happening and what you can do to avoid being taken in. I'm Sophie Bushwick, tech editor at Scientific American. And I'm Julie Gabos, senior multimedia editor. And this is Science Quickly. On social media platforms, some footage and photos that have been attributed to the Israel-Hamas conflict are actually fake or mislabeled or both. Think video game footage passed off as a real missile attack from Israel or parachute jumpers in Egypt mischaracterized as a Hamas attack. Fake content like this has been viewed millions of times. Propaganda during wartime isn't new. But online misinformation spread by social media influencers seems particularly bad around this conflict. And in terms of what I'm seeing, it's definitely comparable and similar to what I was seeing in the first few weeks of the war in Ukraine after Russia invaded Ukraine. And by that, I mean, most of the misinformation in the last two weeks has been um, ordinary people, regular users on the Internet who are trying to do what is known as engagement farming. That's Shayan Sardarzadeh, who works on the BBC Verify team. His job is to take viral photos and videos about the conflict and investigate them. He's also found something really disturbing about all of this. It's probably one of the worst um, examples of misinformation that, you know, you use the pain and suffering of people, genuine people, civilians on the ground, who are being impacted by this conflict to basically farm engagement and build up your influence online. In some cases, I've seen TikTokers who are, you know, claiming to be to be sharing live streams on the ground from either Israel or Gaza. And, you know, the live stream has got two, three million viewers That's because people are more likely to share something that makes them feel emotionally engaged. Even if those emotions are negative. And also, most of the time you're posting stuff that is a bit shocking, a bit sort of controversial. You'll get you engagement and then you will be able to build up your influence. You will get you gain followers. And, you know, if if you're operating on a platform that um, basically pays you money for, for high engagement like YouTube, like TikTok, like Twitter, X as it's known um, these days. These incentives that Cheyenne talks about, they're baked into social media. Platforms are designed to keep people on the site as long as possible. And as part of that, they reward individual accounts for earning engagement from other users. That creates a motivation for unscrupulous influencers to post whatever will get them the most attention. Sometimes those attention-getting posts make false accusations that real people are the ones making things up. In one example Shayan found, a far-right Indian influencer claimed that Palestinian refugees in a bombed refugee camp were actually so-called crisis actors. He falsely stated that they were staging their grief for the cameras. Yeah, 
Cheon personally verified that the video in question featured a man who had lost three of his children. Accusing people of being so-called crisis actors can also happen with mislabeled footage. For instance, Snopes debunked a video on TikTok that claimed to show an Israeli crisis actor pretending to be a recent victim of Hamas. While the video does show an actor being positioned on the ground as if he's injured, it's completely unrelated to the current conflict. It's from an April 2022 film shoot. Shayon pointed out that a lot of these attention-grabbing accounts are falsely passing themselves off as journalists or open-source intelligence. A.K.A. OSINT experts. Which distracts from the true citizen journalists and data analysts. Hi everyone, this is Bissan from Gaza. More than 50,000 to 60,000 people are evacuating to Shifa Hospital and still evacuating every day. People are sleeping, eating, uh, living here. The tons and tons of videos that, that news outlets have shared in the last two weeks has come from people on the ground, either in Israel or Gaza, using their smartphones to record and document what's going on. I found really close to my house. That's my window right now. <gasps> That's the view. And then somebody at a, at a major newsroom, you know, somebody like me or col- my colleagues in, in my team has sat down, looked at that content, verified it and decided, OK, that's good. We can use it. That's genuine content from Israel or Gaza. And, you know, my work would, be, would have been impossible without that. But here's the thing. The combination of a lack of moderation on platforms, the rapid spread of misinformation during a conflict and the incentive of people to get more likes and views is creating this perfect storm. So, Sophie, you cover so much of this, especially in the tech space. What are your thoughts? There's this often misquoted phrase about truth and lies. I'll just give you the Terry Pratchett version. Lies could run around the world before the truth could get its boots on. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's prescient. It's just very easy for anyone to post an unverified photo or story and have it go viral. But if you're if you care about the truth, if you're updating that information with a fact check, it takes you much longer because you have to actually verify the truth and then you have to chase down all these runaway versions of the lie. And those might have spread beyond social media by the time you show up to debunk it. And uh, social platforms aren't policing this, right? Right. A lot of platforms did establish really strong moderation policies after the 2016 election. But more recently, a lot of them have laid off or reduced the trust and safety teams in charge of this. And that makes them much slower to respond to misinformation. This enables the most extreme information out there to take off, even when it's not true. Yes. And I think one thing we've really seen, too, like one of the biggest issues is when we know that viral misinformation, you know, if it starts on social or if it starts somewhere else, um, it makes its way up to news outlets. That sometimes happens when outlets report on a narrative without mentioning that the source of their information could be biased. For instance, publications like The New York Times, CNN, and even the BBC have reported stories that were based on claims from sources that had their own biases and agendas. And then the outlets had to walk back their reporting when a fuller picture emerged from additional sources of information. Right, right. That kind of like need to be first, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to get a more thorough picture before they publish. Exactly. I mean, I know one journalist that's been really active on X, you know, formerly Twitter, and asking outlets and reporters to stop sharing viral misinfo is, you know, Los Angeles Times investigative reporter Adam Elmerich. I don't think in the history of, uh, at least in my career, I have not seen misinformation uh, spread so wildly uh, about this war. 
and and it unfortunately it, the real problem from my vantage point as a reporter in the mainstream media is that stuff uh, percolates up to the mainstream media for what it's worth i am incredibly indebted to our own in-house fact checkers thank you thank you oh, they just help us catch mistakes before we embarrass ourselves we love them um you know copy editors are heroes especially in times like this but what are some other examples of media sharing misinformation one case is an explosion at Al-Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City. Shayan and other investigators, they're actually still examining the visual evidence. Every day my work has been since that, that night, um, going through all the social media footage, CCTV footage, images of the blast site, the crater, the, the damage to 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 the hospital building, um, the car park, the surroundings, you know, the people who were injured, you know, going through all of those videos and um, talking to experts and talking to um, talking to people, our, our reporters on the ground. You know, we, we, we are lucky enough to have a couple of reporters. Not many news organizations currently have reporters on the ground in Gaza. We do. And, and that, that is a huge help to our work. Um. Multiple outlets, um, such as the New York Times, reported that the strike came from Israel before they had evidence of that, and they later had to issue retractions. Reporters are actually still trying to figure out the true story of what happened. In addition to the contested strike at Al-Ali Arab Hospital, Israel's government has targeted Al-Shifa Hospital and has claimed it was a command center for Hamas. Under the laws of war, hospitals lose special protection if they are used for, quote, harmful acts. This raid, which killed a number of civilians, was roundly criticized by Doctors Without Borders, the United Nations, and the World Health Organization. Earlier this month, the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, released a video in which an IDF spokesperson claimed to show evidence that Hamas had held hostages in the basement of the Al-Rantisi Pediatric Hospital. In it, the spokesperson described a document written in Arabic as a, as quote, This is a guardian list where every terrorist writes his name and every terrorist has his own shift guarding the people that were here. Soon after, CNN broadcast a report in which he made the same claim. This is a guarding list. Every terrorist has his own shift. In this room, he says, a guard list that begins October 7th, ends November 3rd, not long before the hospital was evacuated. It turned out to be a calendar with the days of the week since October 7th under the title Al-Aqsa Flood Battle, Hamas's name for its surprise attack on Israel on that date. But there weren't any names at all. Which is what both the IDF video and the CNN broadcast had claimed. And critics online were quick to point that out, especially because the calendar in Arabic was clearly visible. Israel's government has since called this a translation error, and the claims have been walked back. And HuffPost reported that CNN quietly took out the clip about the calendar in subsequent broadcasts and material posted online. But this whole situation had another effect. It has undermined public trust and fed into people's existing confirmation biases. If Hamas was holding hostages at this hospital, the misinformation, even if unintentional, became a really big part of the story instead. That is what people focused on. Another example of a story that was widely reported before there was confirmation was pretty disturbing. So I'm going to recommend that sensitive listeners skip ahead by about five minutes. Here's a clip from the White House on October 11th, 2023. 
I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. I never thought I'd ever, anyway. It turns out that this wasn't true, and Adam had actually been trying to warn people about this. When I tweeted that, that skepticism threat, uh, or maybe the day before when I tweeted about the beheaded babies claim and said, wait, let's figure out what's really going on here. Let's vet this a little bit long, uh, more before we spread it wi- uh, widely. Uh, President Biden went live on air and said that he had, he had seen and confirmed photos of that, that Hamas terrorists were beheading babies. He had to walk that back. He had to retract that. All, as all of this was happening in real time, I kept trying to warn my colleagues, vet this stuff. Don't take it at face value. Question them on it. Press them for the evidence. You know, don't just rebroadcast this claim without any skepticism, without, without saying that this has been vetted, because this is going to have real dire consequences. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, a lot of media did not heed that warning and had to uh, walk back claims, walk back the beheaded babies claim. I just wonder if you could um, explain to us um, just about how the, uh, the president came to say yesterday that he'd um, seen um, pictures of uh, militants beheading children. Um, obviously, it's important to you know, make sure that disinformation doesn't get out there. How did, how did he end up uh, saying that? He's referring to images I think many of you, you have seen, certainly your colleagues have uh, reported on, and obviously Israeli officials have spoken to. But has the president actually yeah, seen the photos yesterday? There was... NBC reported that quote. Beheaded babies, unquote, had 44 million impressions on X alone within a day of the claim being made. And it's a big problem when misinformation is being shared by trusted news outlets or by government officials. By the way, Biden drew criticism just recently for repeating this claim about beheaded babies. Yes. And having official sources like Biden share misinformation like this, it helps lies run around the world even faster. Plus, it increases distrust among readers and listeners. People can end up discounting real news. That's why it is so important for journalists to fact-check their sources, especially if those sources have been known to share misleading information in the past. It's better to get things right the first time rather than making a mistake and then issuing a correction later. Because even when there is a correction, people never pay as much attention to it as they do to the original post. One of the experts we interviewed, Emily Bell, talked about this. My name's Emily Bell. I'm the director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School in New York. And I have been writing about and studying the Internet since the early 90s. So that's a very long time. Different stories and narratives get created and spread and what to do i mean it's really hard to do anything about them once they get them once they're out there because you know you're just sort of left as like one or two voices going but that's not true and people are like it doesn't matter whether it's true it's like broadly true adam also talks about something called atrocity propaganda it's misinfo that's more likely to be spread during the first days of a war or conflict generally to inflame people's emotions and it turns out it has a long history During the Gulf War, uh, a girl testified in Congress and said that Iraqi soldiers had been taking babies from their incubators, scores of babies, removing them and leaving them out to die. Uh, This was as uh, the U.S. was trying to drum up support for the war, the the first war, the Gulf War in Iraq. That uh, claim, that testimony later turned out to be a fabrication. And the girl was the daughter of the 
uh, Kuwaiti ambassador to the U.S. So, you know, this stuff has a long and documented history. But the history of atrocity propaganda is way older than the Gulf War. Adam also brought us an example from the Middle Ages, one that specifically targeted Jewish people. In the context of Jewish people, uh, we call it a blood libel because, um, you know, one of the old one of the oldest claims that goes back to the Middle Ages is that Jews are, are secretly drinking the blood of Gentile children. So this is another form of atrocity propaganda in order to uh, demonize a certain community and motivate people to take violent action against them. When we hear something terrible like atrocity propaganda, we often share it without waiting to check whether it's true. The thing is, terrible things have happened. Israelis experienced horrible terror and violence on October 7th. Palestinians have been dying in airstrikes and being displaced from their homes since then. It's understandable that all of our emotions are high. Absolutely. And misinformation is being further used to manipulate those emotions in order to gain attention and profit, to serve political ends, and even to stoke more violence. Since the initial Hamas attack on October 7th, the Arab-American Anti-Discrimination Committee says it has received hundreds of hate incident reports against Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim Americans. Hearing about these incidents is heartbreaking. A 71-year-old man who had been accused of fatally stabbing a six-year-old boy and seriously injuring his mother because of their Islamic faith and the Israel-Hamas war had been charged with a hate crime. Anti-Semitic attacks are also on the rise. The Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, says there has been a steep increase in anti-Semitic incidents. Between October 7th and 23rd, the ADL says, there were nearly 200 incidents that were specifically linked to the current Israel-Hamas conflict. And these incidents aren't limited to the U.S. On October 18th, there was also a firebomb attack on a Jewish synagogue in Berlin. That's really awful. Absolutely. And historically, misinformation can even be an inspiration for war. Think back to when the U.S. went to war in Iraq in 2003, saying we had to protect ourselves from weapons of mass destruction that we never actually found. Hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of that conflict. So yeah, the stakes are really high. But there are a few steps you can take to make sure you minimize the spread of misinformation. You know, there are two ways to approach um, receiving information, one of which are the researchers would call pre-bunking, which is informing yourself about the situation, whether or not there might be a disinformation campaign around it. So, for instance, when you're consuming news about this conflict, you should start from the perspective that there's a strong motivation for folks to spread misinformation, whether that's propaganda from one group or another, or people who only care about engagement farming. That way, you'll be mentally prepared for any misinformation you encounter. And in studies that they did at the Institute for the Study of Propaganda at Columbia University back in like 1942, proved that actually the most effective one was just telling people, like explaining why people are seeing things and why they have been framed or descri- you know, described in a certain way. It's like when you tell t- there's somebody who did a great study on teenagers and smoking and like saying to, sm- saying to them it's going to kill you, no effect. You know, don't do that, no effect. Um, Saying, so you know how tobacco companies advertise to you, (laughs) et cetera. That has a much bigger effect in discouraging um, teenagers from smoking. 
is actually explaining to them what the marketing apparatus of Big Tobacco is. And when you're reading news, you can remember an acronym called SIFT, which was developed by Mike Caulfield, an expert on digital literacy at the University of Washington. It's short for... S. Stop. Wait for your initial emotional reaction to calm down before you do anything. I. Investigate the source. Try to figure out if the person or outlet reporting this news is legit. F. Find better coverage. Research who else is covering the same event and if they have a different take on the situation. And T. Trace claims, quotes, and media back to their original context. Who provided the quotes or images included in the story? And do they have biases that might skew their perspective? You can also investigate some content yourself. Specifically for something like photos, Cheyenne had great advice for debunking false images. So for images, I I encourage everybody and I recommend people start using reverse image search and get themselves accustomed to it because it's quick, it's easy, it's simple. And you will see just how much misinformation you can check for yourself. You know, there's there's a new tool that's been developed by Google called Google Lens, which is a really good tool, by the way. Uh, At no cost to you, completely free, uh, we'll check that image for you and we'll give you an idea of other examples of that image being posted online and what the context behind it is. It takes minutes. Um, Or you could just go to images.google.com and either copy the URL of that image on, on whichever social media platform you're on or take a screen grab of it yourself. You can just do it and go up to images.google.com and just put this screen grab in there and run, run the reverse image search for yourself. I'm going to note that the average citizen can check images, but for video, it's quite a bit harder. But when it comes to video, um, I have to say it can get a bit more complex. You know, I have been involved in projects with my colleagues at BBC Verify um, where, you know, we've spent days, sometimes weeks investigating videos. Sometimes, particularly in the war zone, there are no quick and easy answers, and there's quite a lot of nuance. It takes, you know, a team of professional journalists, experienced journalists, and not just on their own, also other experts, people who know about blasts, explosions, weapons. You you will need the opinion of those people. You need to consult quite a lot of people to find out what a very, very complex piece of video necessarily shows. So... It's really important to make a habit of verifying information before you reshare it. That said, there's one really faint silver lining to the current misinformation environment. Are you talking about generative AI by chance? You got it. When the conflict started, I was worried that people were going to use AI to make up fake images or to write fake posts. But it doesn't seem to be playing a huge role at the moment. On the one hand, that's good. On the other hand, the reason people aren't using it is because there's plenty of other sources of misleading content. I am starting to see some AI-generated images. I think think that's still not at any level close to, like, misleading old videos, unrelated videos from past conflicts, from video games, you know, from events that have nothing to do with the war. Those are still the main sources of misinformation that I'm seeing. But I've started seeing AR-generated images being shared as well. And um, thankfully, the ones I've seen are not that realistic. Um, but we had two deepfake videos in the first few weeks of the Ukraine war. In this in this case, I have yet to find one. Um, and you know, we'll continue to monitor it. Obviously, um, the, the, the sort of nature of misinformation might actually change as as we go through the coming days and weeks. 
that's actually lucky for us because existing tech tools for identifying whether a photo is a deep fake are not very accurate. That's not great. But AI technology is actually causing a related problem. People have dismissed real photos and videos because they claim that they're actually deep fakes. Yes, exactly. In some cases, it's almost like this is the new high-tech version of crisis actor accusations. Instead of claiming that people in photos or videos are actors, you claim they don't exist at all. Science Quickly is produced by Jeff Del Vizio, Talika Bose, Kelso Harper, and Corinne Leong. Our theme music was composed by Dominic Smith. Don't forget to subscribe to Science Quickly wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth science news and features, go to scientificamerican.com. And if you like the show, give us a rating or a review. For Scientific American, Science Quickly, I'm Talika Bose. And I'm Sophie Bushwick. <laughs>